Welcome back to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. Today, we will be chatting with Jenny Evans, a victim advocate from the Virginia State Attorney General's Office. For those of you who have been with us for a while, you may remember that Jenny was once the director of Gloucester Victim Witness Assistance Program before Chelsea took over. We are so excited to catch up with Jenny and talk with her about all the Attorney General's Office has to offer for victims of crime. So welcome back to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. So to start things off, um, I wanted to go ahead and ask you just really quick questions. So what's your name and where do you currently work? Hi, well, first off, thanks for uh, talking with me today. Uh, My name is Jenny Evans. I am a victim witness specialist with Virginia's Office of the Attorney General. I work in their victim notification program. And so um, kind of just to kind of expand on that, what is your position within the Attorney General's office? Yeah, so um, like I just said, I work in the Victim Notification Program. It is a comparable program to victim witness in local jurisdictions in Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. So I work uh, the same as uh, advocates at the local position. I work with victims of crime um, in either cases that are criminal or civil. If they've been a victim of crime, then I'm able to offer services uh, to them to help them through that process. Great. And then what trainings, credentials, or experience did you need to have to qualify for that position? So because it's at the state level and we uh, deal with things statewide, at the Attorney General's office, we do typically like for people to have a little bit more experience in advocacy than uh, maybe going into a local position. But again, it it really is very uh, parallel. We're uh, working statewide cases, we work civil cases, um, but uh, we do like for people to be credentialed through the National Organization for Victim Assistance. Uh, That just adds a little bit of professionalism and uh, sort of a, a qualifying, you are keeping up with the latest information as research comes out for uh, victim services. And, um, you know, when we say sort of the buzzwords like trauma-informed and best practice, you know, that if you are credentialed through the National Organization of Victim Assistance, you're getting all of that knowledge that stems from the emerging research. Okay, great. Um, So I know you covered this a little bit, kind of talking about the statewide and civil cases, but um, just diving in a little bit deeper, what types of cases does the AG's office typically handle? That's a great question. I I think that that is sort of this this place of confusion for a lot of folks. We are not a supervising agency for local jurisdictions. The Attorney General's office is uh, the office that handles and kind of oversees things for the Commonwealth. So we do a lot of different things. There are, um, you know, I I work directly with the Major Crimes and Emerging Threats Unit. Uh, We also have a unit that um, does sexually violent predator civil commitments. And uh, we also have 
different things like consumer protection uh, for folks who may have been uh, victims of bad business in the Commonwealth. We also provide guidance, legal guidance to state agencies, universities, uh, if there are any claims against different universities. Um, we, we do a lot of different things, real estate, <laughs> taxation, um, tobacco law enforcement, um, and a civil rights unit. So if anyone believes that their, their rights have been violated as um, a citizen of the Commonwealth, then they can file a claim with our office and our civil rights unit will investigate that and um, see if there's any legal standing there. So you kind of peppered around this, uh, but what are some of the services that you, like other services that you all provide to victims of crime? So for, I've touched on it a little bit, like you just said, the, we work off of a, a, the same grant that the local jurisdictions do in, in the victim notification program. So we do things that are really going to directly impact and make sure that those victim rights um, that is laid out in the Victim Rights Act of Virginia, we're making sure that victims are being treated properly through, through any process. So sometimes we work with our um, Medicaid fraud unit. Uh, sometimes we work with our you know, sexually violent predator unit, our major crimes and emerging threats, um, which that unit does a lot of prosecution of cases like a local unit would. And we make sure that those victims, their rights per code are being upheld. So why don't you walk us through what a typical day at the AG's office looks like? I think um, it, it can be so different day to day. You, uh, we, we have a hotline uh, that, that victims can call, and we do get a lot of uh, folks that want to make sure that their rights are being upheld, uh, that maybe they don't feel like they're getting good information on services. Um, so with that hotline, you know, our, our day can kind of be derailed with, with emergencies, but you know, you, you come in, you review your cases, you see what new cases have come in, you handle emergencies, um, that might be coming up. Uh, we do go to court all over the Commonwealth, whether that's cases of appeal, um, I did fail to mention that we do appeals cases. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and so we're making sure that uh, victims have somebody, a support system in court. And um, so it, it varies from day to day. Things can change last minute. Uh, and, you know, if things do change last minute, we're talking to those victims, keeping them informed as they're right and making sure that they feel good and, and supported. Awesome, okay. So um, branching out a little bit, I wanted to ask about what does the collaboration look like between the AG's office and some of the victim services programs? We could not do our jobs properly if it wasn't for folks at the local level. Um, and I'll expand a little bit more uh, on the appeals process uh, since I, I failed to mention that before. 
when we receive a case that has come up for appeal, we automatically reach out to the local victim witness because those folks have the best knowledge about the offense, the best knowledge about their victims, and how to approach the case. So we're really uh, taking that and taking the relationships that have been formed prior to the case coming to us in value. So, you know, maybe we're getting contact information that wasn't provided to us. Uh, maybe we're just getting some insight into um, some things that maybe we wouldn't just read in a case report. Um, family dynamics are a huge thing. Just making sure that we're getting any information that we can from the locals and from the people who have best served those victims through the initial process so that we can really make sure that we're bridging any gaps and making sure that they feel best supported. Uh, we work very regularly with our local programs and, um, you know, sometimes depending on the case, we might even, uh, I'll give an example. Let me step back. So if there was a case coming up for appeal and a local jurisdiction worked really closely with this victim and they had formed a good rapport and they really trust this victim, then maybe we might just funnel our information directly through that victim witness program if that's going to be in the best interest of the victim. So talking and collaborating with our local programs is huge, is huge. Because if we ignore those relationships that were already formed, then then we're just not going to do our best work for the victim. Awesome. And we are so grateful for all of the collaboration. And I, I love that it's so victim centered. Mm -hmm. um, so we're kind of going to take a little bit of a step back and we're going to ask you a little more of a personal question. What made you want to become a victim advocate? Uh, that's such a good question. I, I love this question. And I, I think when you get into victim services, you, you have to have a passion for it, right? I, uh, you really, because it's hard work. It's hard work to talk to people on the worst day of their lives and follow them through the criminal justice system and, and some civil parts in, in our cases. And you really have to have that passion. When I was finishing up my, my college degree, uh, I do have a, a bachelor's in criminal justice. I did an internship with Williamsburg James City County Victim Witness. It was life-changing. I saw people uh, be supported, the confusion that being thrust into this very um, bureaucratic, you know, machine-like system that centers around victimization, it's scary for folks. And I loved just the, the support that I saw the advocate there that I worked with um, provide for people and how that really helped so many people seek justice in a system that wasn't designed initially to have a voice for victims. And it just, it, it was astounding. And that need is there and you know, it's come a long way. Um, but I, I like being a part of that. And I like just helping, helping folks through the process that can be, you know, really daunting. 
Um, so how do you think victim advocates have impacted the criminal justice system as a whole? So I did just touch on that a little bit. I, you know, victim, if it wasn't for victim advocates, we wouldn't have a victim's rights bill. Like I said, the, the initial process really was designed to make sure that people didn't get falsely imprisoned. So if you were accused of a crime, there are layers and layers and layers of things that need to be proved and protections for a defendant because it is a large task to say to somebody, we are going to take away your liberties because you've committed X, Y, and Z crime. What wasn't thought about there is that each step of this the onus is on the victim, or at least that that's a victim's perspective, is that the onus is on them. I've had this terrible traumatic thing happen to me, and now I have to prove it. And the only person being protected is the defendant. I think a lot of the victim rights movement stemmed from the grassroots movement of domestic violence victims. Uh, you know, so I, I think that once we really started getting a feel, we as a collective um, professional group, once advocates started getting a feel for what a victim of domestic violence has to go through to prove to her, I'm using her generally, to their abuser, um, I think that it really stemmed off and branched off and people got to see more of a global view of what the impact of the criminal justice system and how little say victims really have. I think that there are improvements that could still be made. Um, and I think our attorney general, we're grateful to have uh, Jason Yarez, who recognizes the importance of a victim's role in that piece. And, you know, I think that there are so many more improvements that can happen, but it really started with that grassroots victims need a say. Yeah, so I think, uh, of course, with like a lot of what you said about this kind of, you know, the victim services thing being kind of an ever expanding uh, field where we're at right now, I wanted to get your thoughts on kind of aids for victims while they're testifying. So, you know, for example, the therapy animals, little fidgets that they can play with, you know, while testifying or even having, you know, just an, you know, a victim advocate within eyesight in the courtroom that they're familiar with. Absolutely. I. I love AIDS I, for victims while testifying, and I think that that is um, huge. And I think that, that has more recently happened because we're taking more of a victim-centered, trauma-informed approach. So I think that as we have explored how trauma impacts the brain and how people are able to effectively testify about the worst day of their lives, you know... Advocates are great at taking that research, applying that practically. Okay, if I keep a victim busy with their hands, you know, they're going to be able to say more effectively and work through their brain um, ab about what the trauma was. So it's just another layer of how do I minimize the impact of the crime on the victim so that they feel a little bit better about holding that offender accountable. Without these supports and really thinking about how trauma impacts the brain and how we can effectively make, not make people, help people move through that so we can have some accountability for the offenders and also support the victim, 
these aids are so are so great. Um, I wish everybody had therapy animals. Uh, <laughs> that uh, is it's so great. Even just having you know maybe something fuzzy um, for kids. You know, I've I've helped kids pick out stuffed animals so that they have something to hold so that they feel comforted while they're talking about the crime that maybe happened to them. It really is about just minimizing the impact of the crime for the best result and not best prosecution result necessarily the best result for the victim so that they feel loved and supported during a time where they're trying to get justice. I love all of that. Um, so kind of going off of that, what advice would you give a victim who is experiencing the criminal justice system for the very first time? Uh, maybe this is a little biased, but connect with your advocate. <clears throat> you know, I, I think the people in the advocacy world, uh, ideally, don't get in it to get the glory. You know, we're kind of working behind the scenes. We're uh, organizing things uh, for maybe for prosecutors, but also for the victim. And we're connecting them to resources in the area that might not even directly have to do with their crime. So just have an open conversation with your advocate and know that they're there to help. Uh, you're never bugging us. And it, we want to answer your questions. We want to anticipate uh, needs that might be preventing you <clears throat> from engaging if you want to engage with the criminal justice system. You know, maybe <clears throat> you feel like you can't, a, a victim might feel like they can't engage because of work concerns. Tell your advocate. You might not think that it has something to do with court, but maybe they could intervene with your employer and make sure that you're not going to have any negative consequences from participation. There are so many things that advocates know just from connecting and collaborating with other agencies. Just have an open conversation. And, you know, I've, I've told so many folks that I've worked with over the years just ask. If I don't know the answer, I'll find the answer. I'll figure it out. Let's let's do this together so that they don't feel like they're going through it alone. And this last question is honestly my favorite because I think Shannon and I both can attest to this. We've learned so much from you. But if you could go back and tell your first year, Jenny, anything, what would it be? Oh, boy. That's such a good question. I First year, Jenny was working um, with victims of domestic violence, and it still is a community and a victimization area that, that sits very close to my heart. I think uh, I would tell first year, Jenny, that you, you're not there to save people. You're not there to save people. You're there to support people while they're making decisions about their own lives. And you know, it, it, it's so easy for an advocate to have a big heart, uh, but we don't have capes. <laughs> we can't, we can't save everyone. And I think, you know, laying a foundation of, you know, speaking directly to that first year, Jenny, who is working with, with this victims of domestic violence, 
just plant that seed, plant that seed. Just let them know that you're going to be there just because maybe they're not leaving their violent situation. Doesn't mean that you failed as an advocate, uh, just always be that safe space for someone. And, um, so that they know you're coming from a place of non-judgment. Thank you so much, Jenny. It was great to talk to you and share all this information about the AG's office. No problem. No problem. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. We hope this episode was interesting and informative. Check out the episode description for more information on the Virginia State Attorney General's office and the services that they provide to victims of crime. Also, be sure you're following us on all of our social media platforms. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we've got a lot of great stuff planned for that. So until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate. Welcome back to another season of Victim Meet Advocate. This season we have a lot of interesting topics to cover, most notably the first four episodes will all be an explanation of the criminal justice system. So in today's episode, we're going to cover the first steps and actions taken when a crime is reported to law enforcement, what happens to the accused, and the first brushes with the system for both defendants and for victims. So for this process, we will be creating a case study that is entirely fictional but has been inspired by multiple cases that we have seen here. And so before we get started, I want to provide a brief trigger warning. So the following four episodes kind of will, you know, have content that could be triggering to some listeners. So we won't get into extreme detail, but it is important to try to prioritize your mental health and well-being and proceed with some informed caution. Okay, so before we jump in, let's just take a moment to go over some history, because you know me, I love history, and I love telling you all about it. Um, the United States criminal justice system has undergone a plethora of changes since settlers first landed here in 1607. In the early years of America, punishment of criminals was often highly personal, loosely regulated, and often done with a lot of like religious motives. Um, what once was the job by a lone constable or a magistrate soon grew to larger departments as the population began to increase. The process we see today has been cultivated over many years, and actually a little fun fact here, Philadelphia has the oldest police department in the U.S., having been created in 1751. Great, so now that we have the history of the criminal justice system, let's set the stage for the case that will follow us for the next four episodes. This case involves a young woman who is about 21 years of age, who we named Beth. She went to school here in Gloucester and is at our high school that she met a young man whom she would soon start a relationship with, and we'll call him Barry. Upon, up until this point, there hadn't, been, there hadn't been what most would consider major red flags between Barry and Beth. Barry would occasionally make comments about Beth's appearance and weight and often didn't approve of the friends she was hanging out with, but had never been physically violent towards her. So Barry had started working at the Newport News shipyard right out of high school, and he encouraged Beth to take some time to get her life in order and decide what she wanted to do for a career. Beth had some aspirations that included going to community college, potentially becoming a nurse, and yet every time that she would want to start the process of applying to our local community college, something would always come up. Beth and Barry lived together in a home in Gloucester before getting married at 20 years old. And so unfortunately, Beth's family was not local to the area, leaving her without a lot of local family support. And so by the time Beth and Barry got married, Barry was the only person working in the household, as well as monopolizing the usage of their only vehicle. Four months later, Beth would fall pregnant with their first child, and the couple deciding their extending, that extending their family would be a great way to strengthen the relationship between them. 
So we set the stage with this case and share these details to express the point that often cases involving domestic violence incidents start off slow. They aren't like other cases such as breaking and enterings or DUIs. They're often isolated incidents, incidents that mostly happen between strangers or even acquaintances. Our case begins in the early hours of the morning last July. Once again, up until this point, Barry had never been physically violent with Beth. The extent of the violence consisted of Barry threatening Beth with the use of violence if she acted out of line, quote unquote, or would follow um, up with a malicious comment with a cry that he was just joking or that she was too serious. So in the early hours of July 3rd, Barry arrived home after attending a holiday barbecue at his parents' house. Beth had remained at home tending to their daughter, who at this point was nearing her first birthday. The infant had a bad ear infection, causing Beth to have missed the barbecue with Barry's family. When Barry arrived home, he was exhibiting signs of intoxication, such as glassy eyes, slurred speech, and even gait when walk an uneven gait when walking. Beth greeted him at the door, whispering as their daughter had just fallen asleep. Beth then asked him how the barbecue was, to which Barry responded that she should have attended. Beth reminded him that their daughter was sick and that she was exhausted from having, tending, uh, having tended to her all day. At this point, Barry began to verbally berate her. He claimed she did not like his family and that she purposely made their daughter sick so she could get out of having to see them. Beth then waved him off, insisting that he was just drunk and needed to sleep before she started down the hallway to their bedroom. It was at this point that Barry grabbed her arm, whipped her around, pulling her towards him before pushing her against the wall. Beth responded to this by trying to wiggle away and asked him to let her go, which he did not. After a short struggle, Beth was able to get free before she started towards their daughter's room, claiming that they were leaving to go spend the night at her best friend's house so he could sober up. As soon as Beth entered her daughter's bedroom, Barry followed and slammed the door shut behind her. Beth then asked him what he was doing, to which he replied that she was not going anywhere, especially with their daughter who had been woken by the sound of the door slamming. Beth told him he couldn't keep her there and approached their daughter. Barry responded by grabbing her arm and yanking her backwards, causing her to fall to the floor. Barry then straddled Beth and placed his hands on her neck. He applied pressure to Beth's neck area. Beth's vision became blurry. Beth could barely speak during the incident, and a few seconds later, Barry released her and stood up. Barry accosted Beth for making him do that, do these things to her and told her to go console their daughter, saying that she had better not come to bed until her daughter was quiet. Barry left the room and went to their bedroom where he crawled into bed and went to sleep. Beth was able to slowly stand and go to their daughter, who was able to get back to sleep before going to bed. The next morning, Beth and her daughter were still asleep when Barry woke and left for work. Beth woke with a stiff neck and a sore throat, her voice still raspy as she called to her crying daughter in the other room that she was coming her way. When Beth went to pick up her daughter from the crib, she noticed dark handprint-sized bruising on her forearm that was still tender to the touch. Beth then recalled that her best friend was set to stop by and they were to spend the morning running errands together. So when the doorbell rang, Beth pulled on a jacket and planned to tell her friend that her daughter was doing much better and that she didn't need to run out, preferring to just sleep off any pain she had. Upon opening the door, Beth's friend Judy immediately noticed that Beth was not herself. Judy observed bruising to Beth's neck that Beth hadn't noticed yet, along with her right eye that was blood red. This is what medical professionals call a petechia, petechia um, of the eyeball. Judy was obviously alarmed and demanded to know what happened. Beth told her that Barry had come home drunk and had just gotten mad at her and that it wasn't as bad as it looked. Judy insisted that in fact it was and inquired as to when Barry was due home from work. At this point it was about 8 in the morning and, she, and he was set to return home around 2 p.m. After some prodding and support from Julie, Judy, Beth loaded her daughter into Judy's vehicle and the trio headed towards the police station. 
So let's just take a moment to digest all of this. So as of now, we have a crime that has occurred in which law enforcement did not witness. There are many cases in which law enforcement is called out and actively respond to. However, often in the style of domestic abuse incidents, this is a delayed report. A lot of times these cases are reported after the fact and often triggered by the support of another person to the victim, such as Judy is here. When Beth and Judy go to the sheriff's office in their county, they speak to a road deputy who has been dispatched to meet with them. The deputy observes the injuries to Beth and asks her what happened as Judy entertains her daughter. Beth hesitantly describes what took place the prior night, reporting that she was grabbed, pushed against a wall, and then in her words, she was choked for a few seconds. The deputy asks her if she ever lost consciousness or felt like she was going to pass out, to which Beth nodded and added, only a few seconds before he stopped. The deputy then followed up with her, asking if she felt like she was free to leave during the entire time that this encounter took place, and she advised that once she entered her daughter's bedroom and Barry shut the door, that she felt like she was stuck there. So not to get too far into the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony, but in Virginia, if Beth had just been like, you know, slapped around and not strangled, she could have taken out her own warrants and had gone straight to a magistrate. Um, but in this case and in the state of Virginia, in order for a felony to be taken out, a law enforcement has a law enforcement officer has to do an investigation, and they're the ones that have to take out a warrant or a summons. Going back into our case study, the deputy then had both Beth and Judy write down witness statements as to everything that they remembered. While Beth's contained the brunt of the incident, Judy was able to record that she arrived at the home and witnessed significant injuries on Beth that were not there when she saw her the morning before. While Beth and Judy completed their forms, the deputy met with the magistrate via video and requested the following charges for Mr. Barry Klein. Um, so just a quick side note again, the reason we are differentiating between the two types of charges in this instance is because the criminal justice system looks a little different depending on what is charged. When you have a misdemeanor charge to a person, it is typically a shorter process that ends in a bench trial in lower court whereas the felony process is typically longer and requires some additional steps that we will flush out in the next episode. So Barry ends up being charged with um, a felony abduction, a felony strangulation, and two misdemeanor assault and battery family members. He also has issued um, a JDR emergency protective order that will be served upon him when the officers finally make contact with him. And then so following this, the magistrate issues warrants for all of the four charges that we just listed. In criminal cases, there are two types of ways that a person can be notified that they have been charged with a crime. The first is called a summons. This is usually a written notice that a person has been charged and that they need to appear before the appropriate court for a later date. Often summonses are for crimes such as shoplifting or even some traffic violations. When a summons is issued, the person is released on their notice and is not taken into custody. The second notification is an arrest ordered by a warrant. You will often see these in the most serious cases, and these are cases usually involving felonies. And when a warrant has been issued, a person is picked up by law enforcement, transported to their local jail, booked and processed, and then seen by a magistrate. So back in our case study, Beth is made aware of what the deputy has done, and there are now active warrants out for her husband's arrest. This news distresses her a bit, and the deputy offers to connect her with her commun local community advocacy group. So in this case, because it happened in Gloucester, she would be connected with Avalon. They have a 24-hour helpline, as well as um, we at Victim Witness have our liaison, too. Um, the deputy then also asks if Beth would be willing to attend a SANE examination. The deputy calls the Avalon 24-hour hotline and has Beth communicate with the representative there who encourages Beth to attend the SANE exam too. Finally, Beth agrees and the deputy starts to make arrangements to transport her there. 
Um, so just on a side note, so say an exam, they typically would like you to go within the first 72 hours, but even if, you know, it's a delayed report and you don't get there in the 72 hours, you should still go um, just because, you know, there may be additional injuries that you can't see, such as the, you know, there may be bruising to your throat on the inside, or in one of our cases, there was someone who had... Um, a torn cartilage which was something I didn't know could happen in your throat so just going and getting that exam is so important then so Judy offers to take Beth's daughter back to her home while the deputy arranges to escort Beth to the exam Beth is served with her emergency protective order at this time being notified that it expires in three days she is also advised that the protective order is not active until it is served on Barry and he has noticed that he is under its requirements and that the deputy plans on having Two of his co-workers head over to Beth's home around the time Barry gets off work to see if they can serve him there. So Beth then attends her SANE exam, and a SANE examination is conducted by a trained medical professional called a SANE nurse and is used to document a person's physical state after a crime has happened to them. In this particular exam, Beth is met by her community advocate from Avalon at the hospital, who starts off with just building some rapport with her and ensuring she's comfortable as the examination begins. SANE exams can often be pretty lengthy, and Beth is... Um, and luckily Beth is being briefed on everything the SANE nurse does in order to extract evidence and document her injuries. In this case, the SANE nurse takes photos of Beth's injuries, particularly to her neck and head that show trauma. If we recall, she had the bruising and the patika of the eyeball. The nurse will then get a general history on Beth as well as go over what has led her to visit the hospital. So during this time, we see the first brush of advocacy come into play. We at Gloucester Victim Witness are system-based advocates, meaning we work directly with the criminal justice system and our affiliated attorney's office. Oftentimes, our scope of services is limited when crimes have just been committed and warrants have just been issued. This is when our community-based counterparts become an invaluable resource. They can help fill a connection of care that we as assistant-based advocates can't have yet. The community-based advocates also have more leeway when it comes to confidentiality and what services they can provide to a victim. So the same ex the same exam concludes, and on Beth's courtesy ride back to Gloucester, she is informed that Barry returned home and was subsequently arrested for the four charges as well as served with his copy of the emergency protective order. And so this order prohibits contact and acts of violence between Barry, Beth, and their child. And so in this instance, Barry is the respondent, Beth is the petitioner, and their child is a protected party. On the emergency protective order, Beth is granted possession of their marital residence and is sub subsequently returned there. Meanwhile, Barry has been transported and booked at the Gloucester County Jail. He and the deputy with him then go before a magistrate via video chat, where the magistrate then determines if Barry should be released on bond. The magistrate grants him a secured bond of $1,000 on both of the misdemeanor assault charges, but holds him on the two felonies. Barry is then housed at the Gloucester County Jail and given a date in which he is to appear by video in the Juvenile Domestic Relations Court for arraignment. So once we would get these charges and on a side note, we would um, then call Beth and communicate with her. And one of the things that we would share with her is about VineLink, which is a system that we could sign her up for that will let her know if Barry is released um, and if Barry is moved to another facility or if something would happen to Barry in jail. And so at this point, the charges have been served on Barry and his paperwork is forwarded to the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. Here, a file is created and charges are attached to this user that our case tracking system has. Our victim witness director then goes through and assigns the case to the appropriate advocate. Sometimes an advocate already has a heads up if Avalon is involved or if we have read the, or read the report in the sheriff's office information system. 
However, for this case, we do not. So the advocate then makes initial contact with the victim, in this case, Beth, and introduces themselves. So in this first interaction, we check on her and see how she's feeling. We then explain our role and the rights that Beth has now that she is the victim of a crime. We then inquire as to if she would like to file for a preliminary protective order. For this case, Beth is interested in doing so, so the advocate collaborates with our juvenile and domestic relations court to ensure Beth can arrive at the courthouse and speak to the judge before her EPO expires. If you want a more in-depth explanation as to all of this in the process, check out Season 2, Episode 3 that covers the protective order process here in Gloucester. Um, so this is where we'll stop for now. We have outlined a bunch of information in our hypothetical scenario and wants to just quickly recap what we've talked about. This was a domestic incident between a husband and a wife with a child in common. The victim was encouraged to report the incident to law enforcement by a close friend. Law enforcement then took her statement, connected her to the community-based advocacy agency, coordinated a SANE exam, and then took out four charges on the suspect who now earns the title of defendant. The case is then forwarded to the Commonwealth Attorney's Office where the system-based advocate becomes involved and the court side of the journey begins. So another collaboration that may occur at this stage is the connection with our social local service social services worker. System-based advocates are mandated reporters along with any law enforcement who responds to an incident. We work closely with our local social services and keep them up to date with the goings on, going-ons of cases so that they can help our victims safety plan and provide them the resources that they may need. Oh, sorry. Some of the, sometimes at this process, victims will have questions. And so these are just some of the frequently asked questions we get at this stage of the process. So one of the first ones is how long is this going to take? And we, we can't really give you that answer because the criminal justice system moves at its own speed and lots of different things can happen, such as continuances. Maybe we need some more evidence in the investigation, medical reports to come back. So we really can't give you that answer, but just plan on it taking months. Um, the second question we frequently get is, can I drop the charges? And so each office is different and has their own policies, but typically that you can't do anything at this point because it's not you versus this person, it's the Commonwealth versus this person. And so it's the prosecutor's job to determine if we have enough evidence to go forward. So then the final question that we usually get a lot at this stage is, do I have to testify? And we would like to tell people this is a traumatic event and it's overwhelming. So thinking about what's going to happen six months down the road or four steps from now isn't really helpful. Um, and it can be really overwhelming. So at some point you may have to testify and we're here to help prepare you for that. But we can't answer that question because we don't know what's going to happen in the case in the future. In part two of this four-part section of season three, we will cover the arraignment of Barry, his bond hearings, preliminary hearing, and then the case's journey to the grand jury. We plan for part two to be uploaded next month and look forward to covering the next step in this process. Check out the episode description for some resources and to ensure you're following us on all of our social medias, both on Facebook and Instagram. And until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate. Welcome back to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. In the previous episode, season three, episode one, we covered the reporting of a crime to law enforcement, investigations, and arraignments. In this episode, we will cover the next stages in the criminal justice system process. Those stages are, are bond, bond hearings, preliminary hearings, and grand jury, and we will continue to use the case of Barry and Beth. So let's start by recapping last month's episode. We started by introducing you to Barry and Beth, who are intimate partners. We also disclosed the pattern of intimate partner violence within the relationship. 
Next, we found out that Barry has strangled Beth during a violent argument. Beth's friend encouraged Beth to report the incident to law enforcement. An investigation ensued and ultimately charges and warrants were taken out against Barry for strangulation, abduction, and an assault and battery, and we actually took out two of those. Finally, we discussed the difference between a summons and a warrant, the arraignment process, and reviewed the EPO process. If you need a refresher, check out Season 3, Episode 2 for details about the case with Barry and Beth. And it should be noted that the processes we are about to describe differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. These processes are complex. Many different outcomes and exceptions can happen. As system-based advocates, we are not attorneys. And while we learn a lot from the attorneys we work with, we are not experts. We will break down the processes in the simplest way with the outcomes that we've experienced the most. This is not a catch-all explanation. If you are a victim of a crime, it is best to consult with the prosecuting attorney and your assigned advocate for specific details on hearing outcomes and procedures in your case. So while Barry is still being held in jail on the two felony charges, typically at this point, Barry's defense attorney, who we will call Miss Defender, will request a bond hearing in a lower court. Because Barry and Beth were in an intimate partner relationship and have a child in common and have lived together, this case will start in the Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court. So then please refer to Season 2, Episode 3 for details on each court and what relationship places you in what court. The bond hearing is an opportunity for defendants to convince the judge that they should be released from jail. Judges hear evidence from both the defense and prosecution on whether or not the defendant should get bond. Defense attorneys will present evidence of medical conditions, work, family responsibilities, or other reasons for why a person should not stay in jail while awaiting trial. The prosecution will present evidence that demonstrates why the defendant should not be released, such as a summary of the crime, criminal history, and safety concerns. These are not the only pieces of evidence they can present, but they are the most common. So quick history lesson, because y'all know I'm going to bring the history to this. Bond hearings are actually modeled after the English criminal justice system. Even back in the 1600s, officials who were involved in criminal law did not feel that everyone needed to spend the entire time they were waiting for trial in jail. The first time we hear about bail mentioned in American history is through the Judiciary Act of 1789. This established that crimes that are not punishable by death could be, as they quoted it, bailable. Over time, many factors have, brought, have been brought up to determine bail, as we mentioned earlier, and have kind of flushed out a little more um, kind of very um, specific matters as to determining bail. So after the judge hears all the reasons, either for or against bond, they are expected to make a ruling, and the judge is looking for evidence of the following to decide. So whether or not the defendant is a danger to the community, Sorry. Do, do they have a criminal history that is violent, lengthy, or contains a failure to appear to court convictions, and the seriousness of the charges and the crimes at hand? And the judge can consider all evidence presented, but is looking for whether someone is a danger to the community or poses a flight risk. If the judge does decide to give someone bond, they have several different conditions they can place them on. One of the first things that we often hear in bond hearings is whether they have a secured or an unsecured bond. So a secured bond means that the defendant will have to pay a portion of the bond set by the judge in order to be released. Most of the time it's 10%. So if it's a $1,000 secured bond, they'll have to put up $100. Unsecured bonds is when the defendant doesn't have to pay any money to be released, but they're released with the expectation that they're going to show up to court. If they don't, then they have to pay it. Um, another thing that they often put them on is pretrial. So these are essentially probation officers who will monitor the defendant to make sure they're complying with the terms of the bond, such as no alcohol and drugs, no contact with the victim, etc. And they'll be required to check in with them, take drug tests, things like that. 
Another thing that we sometimes hear is the electronic monitoring. This service is used to monitor probation and pretrial and has conditions such as the person cannot leave their home but for appointments with the attorney, medical appointments, work, school, and even checking in with their probation officers. Now please note this is not a comprehensive list and often each set of conditions is specific to the concerns presented with that defendant. Um, if the judge decides to deny the defendant's motion for bond, the defendant will be held until their trial. The defendant has the option to appeal this decision to the circuit court for the circuit court judge to review and determine if they choose to issue bond or not. In this case, Barry's, attorneys, Barry's attorney, Ms. Defender, in this case, presented that Barry needs to be released in order to maintain his employment with the Newport News Shipyard. She further presented that Barry is the sole provider for Barry, Beth, and their child. Ms. Fender presents a letter from the shipyard stating that his employment is available to him should he be released at this hearing. Finally, Ms. Fender tells the court that Barry could live with his parents and provides an address of 123 Easy Street, Gloucester, Virginia, 23061. It should be noted that the defendant can testify or call any witnesses if they choose. And so after Ms. Fender presents her evidence, it's the prosecution's turn to present their evidence. The prosecutor, in our case, Ms. Polly Cruder, Cuter, Polly, Polly presents the criminal complaint that details the incident between Barry and Beth. She also gives the judge Barry's criminal history, which here in Virginia is called a VSIN. That criminal history shows all crimes that a defendant was charged with and the outcome from all states. VSINs only show adult criminal history and not anything from when someone was a juvenile unless it was a crime that a juvenile was then treated as an adult. In these hearings, it is common for the prosecution to only present a criminal complaint and a criminal history as evidence. The final portion of the bond hearing before the judge makes a determination is argument. In this case, Ms. Fender tells the judge that Barry is employed and supports his family. She argues that Barry does not have a lengthy criminal history or any failures to appear in his past. Ms. Fender also reminds the judge that Barry has a place to live away from Beth and is willing to have no contact with her. Ms. Cuter gives her argument next. She presents that the Commonwealth has concerns for Beth's safety and should, should Barry be released. Ms. Cuter presents the judge that Barry has had several convictions in the last five years for assault and battery on previous girlfriends, neighbors, and co-workers. Ms. Cuter argues that no conditions the judge could place Barry under would keep the community safe from him given that he has shown in the past that he cannot follow a court order. The judge decides to deny Barry's motion for bond. At this point, the advocate, who we will call Ava Cat, reached out to Beth and lets her know the results of the bond hearing. Ava reminds Beth that she can sign up for Vineling, which will notify her of the defendant's release, movement to another facility, and if he would be killed or injured in jail. Ava will also explain that Barry has 10 days to submit an appeal to the circuit court, and she will be calling Beth to let her know if he submits that appeal. For the sake of this case and time, we will say that Barry did not appeal his bond. It should be noted that if there is a change in circumstance, like Barry now has a medical condition the, judge, the jail cannot treat, then the judge can reconsider bond. The next step, whether a bond hearing happens or not, is the preliminary hearing. The preliminary hearing is what we call the probable cause hearing. This hearing is for the judge to hear limited evidence of the crime and determine whether the case should continue on to circuit court and the grand jury. The judge is specifically looking for, did it, you know, looking to see if a crime did occur and if the defendant is likely the one who did it. Preliminary hearings only occur in felony cases and happen in the lower court. And so in our case, the preliminary hearing will occur in the JDR court. 
So in preliminary hearings, the prosecution goes first. They will put on witnesses and evidence to show that a crime was committed and the defendant is likely the one who did it. Once the Commonwealth rests, the defense attorney will make a motion to dismiss. The defense attorney will provide examples of how the prosecution has not met all the elements required in the statute or code section to believe that their crime has occurred. The judge will hear the defense motion and argument from the prosecutor and make a determination. If the judge denies the motion, then the preliminary hearing will continue and the defense will put on their evidence if they wish to do so. The defense does not have to put on any evidence. If the motion is granted, the case is dismissed. In Barry's preliminary hearing, Beth and the officer she reported to testify. Beth shares that events occurred in their home in Gloucester. Beth and Barry are in a relationship and share a child and a little bit about what occurred. Often prosecutors will not go into detail as they do not want to put the victim through being thoroughly cross-examined at the preliminary hearing and then again at the trial. After Ms. Cuter asks her questions, Ms. Fender is allowed to ask questions that relate to what Ms. Cuter asked. Ms. Fender will ask questions such as, did you meet with Ms. Cuter before the hearing? And if so, did she make any promises to you? Have you ever been convicted of a crime involving lying, cheating, or stealing? And details about what she previously testified to. After Beth is finished testifying, the officer is called next. The judge released Beth, meaning that she was able to sit in the courtroom for the rest of the hearing. Ava sits with Beth and explains the hearing, answering any of Beth's questions. Then the officer testifies to responding to Beth's call and complaint and the details of the investigation, such as any statements that Barry made to him. The officer also testifies that the events occurred in Gloucester County, and just like with Beth, Ms. Fender gets the opportunity to ask the officer questions. After the officer testifies, Ms. Cruder rests her case, Ms. Fender makes the motion to dismiss the charge, the judge denies that motion and allows the preliminary hearing to continue. Ms. Fender decides not to put on any evidence and the judge determines that there is probable cause. The case then goes to the next grand jury. So before the preliminary hearing, Ava and Polly would meet with Beth to review the questions she will be asked in the preliminary hearing, a safety plan, and to discuss courtroom specifics. Ava will even take Beth to the courtroom so she can see where everyone will sit. Ava will tell Beth how the defense attorney asks questions and the judge's demeanor. In this meeting, Ava is listening and observing Beth to determine coping strategies that will be helpful when she's testifying. Most of the time, this includes deep breaths, showing answering questions instead of rapid fire, and stress balls. The final part that we will cover in this episode is the grand jury. Like a preliminary hearing, the grand jury is also a decider of probable cause. Grand jury is made up of residents of the county or city the case is in. Grand jury is a closed hearing where the officer will present the facts of the case and answer questions that the jurors have. The prosecuting attorney, the elected official in, in that office, will be on standby should the jury have questions that the officer cannot, officer cannot answer. This hearing is closed, meaning that Beth, Barry, Ava, and Polly are not present or allowed to be present. Our grand jury in Gloucester meets six times a year, so January, March, May, July, September, and November. So I'm going to dive back in with a quick little history lesson. Grand juries are, much like our bail system, inspired heavily by English law. They operate incredibly like the way they do today. However, today they are only used for criminal matters, whereas in the 1700s, one could even petition them to decide if a public work needed repair. Before the 19th century, there were no established advent of public prosecutors, which I thought was really interesting when I found that out. Therefore, the grand jury was especially needed to rule out any incompetent or malicious prosecutions. The grand jury is one of the many rights afforded to the accused under the Bill of Rights. And so the grand jury in our case hears the evidence that Barry, that Barry strangled Beth, prevented her from leaving, grabbed her arm, and pushed her against the wall. They will also hear that Beth and Barry are in a relationship and have a child in common. If Beth has any injuries from the strangulation or assault, those will also be presented. 
And so once the grand jury hears the evidence, they will determine if a true bill is found. Once that happens, the prosecuting office is notified and an arraignment is set in circuit court. This arraignment is like the first, and since Barry is already being held in jail, the clerk's office just sent him copies of the true bill, letting him know that he was indicted by the grand jury and his arraignment date. So on that arraignment date, Barry is presented formally with the charges. The clerk reads aloud the charges and says that he will be indicted by the grand jury sitting on whatever date that they were sitting on, and that they formally charged that on July 3rd, 2022, Barry Badman unlawfully strangled or impeded the airway of Beth Badman in conflict with the code section 18.2-51.56. Each charge will be read similarly. The judge will ask the defendant if he wishes to hire his own attorney, have a court-appointed attorney, or even represent himself. Since Barry already had Miss Bender in lower court, he asked the judge to appoint her on the case in circuit court. The judge does just that. The judge lets Barry know that Miss Bender can ask another bond hearing and will be in touch with him about the next court date once one is scheduled. While all this is occurring, Ava is working with Beth to sign her up for Virginia Victims Fund to assist in paying for counseling, lost wages, and medical bills from her SANE exam. Ava is also connecting Beth to local DV organizations like Avalon to provide her services such as shelter or transitional housing. Ava calls Beth to let her know of the next court date and set up meetings with Polly Cuter to discuss the trial and any testimony that Beth may have to give. In the next episode of Victim Meet Advocate, we will cover bench trials, jury trials, and plea agreements. We have just a few announcements of upcoming events that are really important to us and a couple of resources. So the first resource is the DocSafe app. Um, Chelsea, I remember you mentioned this yesterday. It's a great tool for victims. Um, it allows you to kind of collect everything that you have, like if you're keeping a running list of any incidents with someone who may be stalking you, things like that, and they um, are not accessible to anyone but yourself. And it's just a good place to keep all of your documents safely. Um, we also have National Crime Victims' Rights Week, April 24th through the 28th. We have an uh, event coming up. We're in the early stages of planning that, so definitely make sure you're following us on social media to keep up to date with that. And as always, we have internships available and would love to share our knowledge with the community. So reach out to Chelsea Pierce at the email um, address in the episode description, and I'll also link our... Um, website so that you can access her on that as well and then like i said before please follow us on facebook and instagram to keep up with your updates and your resources and until next time this has been victim meet advocate welcome back to victim meet advocate if you are just joining us we have been diving into the criminal justice system using fiction using the fictional case of barry and beth in the last two episodes we covered the investigation arraignment preliminary hearing and grand jury in this episode we will cover bench trials pleas and juries when we were last with barry and beth barry Batman had gone through his preliminary hearing and grand jury while all this was occurring our victim advocate ava was assisting beth in finding resources to support her through this time such as VineLink and Avalon. We're gonna jump back in and start the story of Barry's trial. Barry's lawyer, Miss Fender, requested a jury trial. Once that request is made known to Ava and Miss Cuter, they jump into action preparing Beth and other witnesses to testify. Ava will take Beth on a tour of the courtroom and prepare her for how the circuit court judge handles the courtroom. In our case, the circuit court judge is named the Honorable D. Trier. As mentioned in the last episode, all felony cases are handled in the circuit court. Circuit court is the only court where a jury trial can occur on our local level. After a grand jury finds a true bill, the defendant is brought in for counsel determination. In our case, Barry asked Judge Trier to appoint Ms. Fender to continue to represent him. The next steps will be some form of adjudication. So that's making a formal judgment or decision about a problem or disputed matter. 
So it could be a bench trial, a jury trial, or a plea. In our case, Barry chooses to have a jury trial. And so the jury is scheduled for several days. As mentioned before, the advocate is prepping the victim and other lay witnesses for the trial. Ava arranges courtroom tours, meeting with the prosecutor, safety plans with court officers to ensure safety during the trial and after Beth testifies, and gets coping tools like a stress ball for Beth to use while she testifies. Ava will make sure that Beth is kept informed throughout the entire process. The first step of a jury trial is selecting the jury. Both the defense attorney and the prosecutor will have a chance to ask the jury questions to determine who they would like to select for a jury. Each lawyer will ask questions such as, do you know any of the witnesses, law enforcement officers, or have you ever been represented by the defense attorney in the past? Both attorneys will have the opportunity to strike people from the jury. This means to go ahead and exclude them. They can remove people who have a relationship with the witnesses or the defendant as needed. However, they can only strike four people just because they would like to. Essentially meaning that they have to provide a valid reason for why they were striking someone so the judge can know. I figured this was a good time to interject and ask this question, but what are some of the wilder things that you guys have seen or heard in a jury selection? So one of the juries I saw, um, it was like as mild as like someone knew the defendant. I know in my most recent jury, halfway through, one of our jury members says, I remember this man because I worked at the office that he came to after the crime. And then another one was a man said that he had been to jail for a certain amount of years. His rights have been restored and he is never sending anyone to jail. What about you, Chelsea? Um, so I'm not sure if this really qualifies as wild, but during a robbery trial, um, so one of the people on the jury said that they believed this person should be robbed since they were already, like, since they had robbed somebody else. So they were obviously stricken from the jury pool. <laughs> I think those certainly meet the criteria of wild. So jumping back on track, once the, once the jurors are selected, the trial can begin. And so attorneys can choose to have opening statements or they can both waive and get straight into presenting evidence. In our case, both attorneys choose to give opening statements and at this time, all of the witnesses that have been sequestered from the trial to ensure there is no one changing a story. This is not a requirement for every case, but most cases will call for witness separation. Ms. Cuter goes first. She tells the jury a summary of what the evidence they will hear, such as uh, such as Barry has a history of abusive behavior towards Beth, and this time he took that behavior too far and ended up strangling Beth, preventing her from being able to breathe to the point that she almost blacked out. Ms. Cuter will then tell the jury if, or will tell the jury if they believe the evidence they hear, they must find Barry guilty of strangulation. Next, Ms. Fender will make her statements. She will try to put doubt in the jurors' heads about the summary of the facts that they just heard from Ms. Cuter. So then we get to the part that we're most familiar with when we see those courtroom TV dramas, and this is the presentation of evidence. Miss Cuter gets to present first. The first witness she calls is Beth Badman. Beth testifies to what happened between her and Barry the day of the incident. Examples of the most common questions that we see that victims are asked in these court cases are, did the location happen in such and such county? In our case, it would be um, that the incident did happen in Gloucester County because we have to establish that jurisdiction. They're gonna ask, can you identify the defendant? Because we wanna make sure we have the right person who committed the crime present in court. Um, since this is a strangulation case, the victim will also be asked about her inability to breathe while Barry was strangling her. Um, another thing that sometimes we kind of bring in is what caused the event to end, whether it was, did you get away and call law enforcement? Did it stop? Things like that. 
Another thing that I've noticed a lot, especially in um, cases where there are intimate partners, is were the police called and when did you go to law enforcement? So if the police weren't called right after the incident, a lot of times we'll kind of clarify when they went to law enforcement and what the um, kind of catalyst was to put them into law enforcement's hands. Um, so after Ms. Cuter finishes questioning Beth, the defense attorney gets an opportunity to ask questions. The defense cross-examination questions may include trying to ask details that Beth seems unclear on to try and trip her up. The goal here is to make Beth look not credible so the jury will have doubts as to Barry's guilt. The defense attorney can only ask questions in relation to what the prosecution has asked. For example, the defense cannot ask Beth what she was doing two days before the assault. When Ms. Fender, do when Ms. Fender does ask this, Ms. Cuter stands and says objection. Then she argues that this question is irrelevant and beyond the scope of her direct line of questioning. The judge then determines Ms. Cuter is in the right and Beth does not need to answer that question. The defense attorney gets to cross-examine all the prosecution's witnesses. And so once Beth is done testifying, she can be released, meaning she may stay in the courtroom to watch the rest of the trial, or she may go home and have Ava call her afterwards with the result. Another thing that may happen is she may be asked to remain. In this case, the prosecution may need to recall her for questioning, dependent upon other testimony, and they do not want to discredit her. If she is to remain, she would return back to the hallway, and Ava would go back into the courtroom and wait to see if she is needed. In this case, Beth is released and she takes a seat next to her advocate and Judy, her support person, in the courtroom. After Ms. Cuter rests her case, just like the preliminary hearing, the defense attorney will make a motion to strike or dismiss, stating the prosecution did not meet the elements of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning that they, have showed a 90, they haven't showed the 99% certainty that Barry committed the crime. At this time, the jury is sent out of the room before argument is heard to ensure their decisions are not affected by this argument. Although this is a jury... This is a jury. The judge will decide the motion. For our sake, we'll say the judge denied that motion and the jury was brought back in for the trial to continue. Next, the defense gets to put on their witnesses. Just like you see on TV, the defendant, Barry, does not have to testify. Most defendants will not testify, but let's say in our case, Barry does. The prosecution has the opportunity to ask questions of all defense witnesses as long as it is within the quote-unquote scope of what the defense attorney has asked. So after both sides have rested and presented their evidence, the jury will be read instructions on what the charges are and what the elements of those charges are. The instructions are prepared by both the prosecutor and the defense in advance. There may be some disagreement on these for the sake of this. Let's just say Ms. Fender does not agree on something Ms. Cuter has put in the direct into the instructions. The judge hears both sides and then they all agree to strike that particular instruction. After the jury is read the instructions, they go to another room and begin to deliberate. And so the jury gets options for the, for the charge the defendant was indicted on, such as reducing the charge to a lower one. So an example of this would be a jury may find that an aggravated malicious wounding is actually just a malicious wounding based on the evidence that they have heard during the trial, or to find them not guilty in our case. And so in our case, the jury has three options. The first would be to find Barry not guilty. The second would be to find him guilty of strangulation and assault and battery, or the third to just to find him guilty of just the assault and battery. And so after the jury deliberates, they decide to find Barry guilty of strangulation and assault and battery. 
So during this whole process, Ava is providing support to Beth and other witnesses. She's keeping them up to date on how the case is going, providing them with some coping tools, like we mentioned, like the stress ball, and making sure that Beth has a safe place to wait where Barry and his family cannot have contact with her. Since Barry was found guilty, Ava then briefly explains the victim impact statement how sentencing will work and encourages Beth to take in everything that has happened. She also schedules another time to call to go um, to call her to go more in depth about all those things that we're going to cover in the next episode. Um, so basically what we just described was a general summary of how a jury trial works. Jury trials are not the only way for a case to conclude. Two other ways are bench trials and pleas. Since circuit court is the only court that can have jury trials, if this case had been a misdemeanor, we would have been covering a bench trial. That is a trial where the judge is a decision maker of guilt or innocence. Evidence is presented in a similar way and ultimately the judge will make that decision, then sentencing will occur. In lower courts, victims do not complete victim impact statements. However, sometimes victims can speak to the judge about their experiences regarding the crime. This is usually rare and is dependent on the judge. And so pleas can be entered in all three courts. A plea agreement is an, is an agreement between the defendant, the prosecution, and the court for the defendant to plead guilty to a certain charge. In that agreement, there can be conditions that the defendant has to follow, such as being on probation, mental health counseling, no drugs and alcohol, no contact with the vic victim and witnesses in the case, etc. And so the agreement can include an agreed upon sentence, but does not have to. In the case, in the case that an agreement isn't agreed upon, the judge will determine the appropriate sentence. And so Barry, if he had entered into a plea agreement, then the judge would have asked Barry a series of questions to see if Barry was able to understand what was happening, what he was pleading guilty to, and what rights he was waiving so he could enter that plea agreement. And so because of the nature of our case, Barry will be given a PSR, which is a pre-sentence report, and a sentencing date to come back. And on that day, Beth can share her victim impact statement, which we will cover in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. We now have only one more episode left in this section of season three, so be sure you're following all our social medias to stay up to date on the latest episodes and our awareness months. All affiliated links will be in the description. And until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate. Welcome back to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. This month, we are bringing awareness to crime victim rights. When this podcast is released, we will be in the middle of National Crime Victims Rights Week. Check out your local victim witness program for community events being held April 24th through the 28th. One right that victims have within the criminal justice system is to be heard. And in this episode, we're going to go over and cover how that right is honored during the sentencing portion of the criminal justice system. When we last left Barry Badman and Beth Badman, Barry had just been found guilty of strangulation and assault and battery. After the trial, Ava prepares Beth for what the sentencing hearing entails. Ava gives Beth a copy of the outline of a victim impact statement. This impact statement is a guide for victims to write how the crime has impacted them. The impact statement can include how the crime has impacted them financially, mentally, and physically. Victims can also share how they are feeling in forms of memories, poems, or pictures. So here I come with the history of this. So the victim impact statement, and I didn't know this until just recently in American history because they have um, a little bit of a different kind of way that they do victim impact statements in different countries. But in our history, it actually has its roots in the Charles Manson cult case that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And the first one to ever be recorded and recognized belonged to Doris Tate, and that's Shannon Tate's mother. When she was heard over um, concerns over the defendants relating to the matter, being given parole in 1976. And since then, 
victim impact statements have been instrumental in many popular court cases and though they and the people who orchestrate them are often pushed to the wayside in favor of focusing on the offenders one example of this was that um in like a lot of the jeffrey dahmer media that there is there's very little media that i see that really kind of encompasses all of the victim impact statements even though some of those are some of the most harrowing and the most i don't want to use the word iconic but it's very um kind of at the forefront of what a victim impact statement is. So um, in 1982, that's the first time that we really, really ever see legislation address the need for judges to consider victim impact statements. And in the 1991 case of Payne versus Tennessee, it was upheld that victim impact statements were in fact constitutional and could be considered in cases involving the death penalty. And so in our case, once Beth has completed her impact statement, she's gonna return it to Ava. Ava will then share that impact statement with the prosecutor, Ms. Cuter, the defense attorney, Ms. Fender, the judge, and finally the probation office. And so at the end of episode three, we briefly mentioned a pre-sentence report, or PSR. After someone is found guilty of a felony charge in circuit court, they are ordered to present, or I'm sorry, to complete a pre-sentence report with the probation office. That pre-sentence report is similar to a background check on the defendant, their criminal history, social history, thoughts and feelings of the crime are included in the PSR. Included in the report is the victim impact statement, which is why the advocate will share the victim impact statement with the probation office. Also included in the PSR is sentencing guidelines. So it should be noted that while we are not attorneys and will not get in too deep with legal ideas or procedures, we do believe it's helpful for victims to understand what goes into the decision-making process when it comes to sentencing. So these sentencing guidelines actually got their start in November of 1987 when Congress had decided that there needed to be more regulation on the punishment of offenders. Some of the big um, kind of topics that came up when they were discussing kind of implementing sentencing guidelines were that um, they felt that previous, um, previously before then, the sentencing discretion what, that was accorded to these federal trial judges needed to be more structured because it seemed like they were just getting these very different um, kind of responses to sentencing depending on how the judge was feeling that day or depending on a lot of different factors as opposed to just this is the sentence you get according to this formula. Another thing that they wanted to kind of focus on is the administration of punishment needed to be more certain. So they wanted to make sure because when we look at criminological theory, we look at the deterrence theory and how we wanted um, justice should be swift, certain, and it should deter other people, especially those sentencing, you know, you will get this if you do this. So they wanted to make sure that it was more certain so that there were more stakes on the line to deter people from committing these crimes. And um, they also wanted to target specific offenders. For example, um, white collar offenders, violent and repeat offenders. Um, they felt that they shouldn't just be getting kind of a blanket, oh, you know, it's just over and over again, you keep getting your slap on the wrist. They wanted something to be implemented that showed that if you keep doing these things or you keep doing this certain crime or if you do it for the first time, that there are heightened um, penalties for doing that. And so these sentencing guidelines provide our judge with a range of active jail time for Barry. The guidelines consider Barry's criminal history, and the best way that I have heard an attorney describe the guidelines is guidelines are used to tell the judge what's, what's someone who is similar in situation, so similar in criminal history, and similar charges has also been sentenced to by different judges across the state. This range can be no active jail time to the maximum sentence allowed for that specific crime. So in Barry's case, his guidelines come back on the assault and battery as no active jail time or an all-suspended sentence. 
His guidelines for this strangulation come back six months to three years, and it should be noted that in the state of Virginia, the sentence for strangulation is one to five years, and each state jail sentences are different. All sentencing ranges given in this episode are based off Virginia code. So at the sentencing hearing, the judge will start by asking the defense and the prosecution to review the PSR and state if there are any changes or any errors they might find. I know in one of mine most recent, they just wanted to make sure that the um, spellings were correct, the birth dates were correct, things like that. Um, Next, each side gets to present evidence on why a certain sentence should be imposed by the judge. Evidence can include testimony by character witnesses, letters from character witnesses, criminal history, guidelines, victim impact statements, even our victims actually taking the stand and talking about how the crime affected them. And so victims can provide their impact statement in several different ways. They can read what they wrote out loud to the court. They can also just give their written statement to the judge ahead of time, as mentioned before. And the last way is that the victims can testify. So this, in many other states, looks like the victim getting yelled at the defendant about how much pain they have caused or been caused by the crime. In in Virginia, at least our locality, the victim goes to the witness stand and will answer questions from the prosecuting attorney. Um, so in this hearing, the prosecutor presents first. Miss Cuter lets Beth take the stand and testify. Miss Cuter asks Beth questions about how she felt when the crime was happening. She asks her about her long-term injuries from the strangulation. Beth also gets an opportunity to tell the judge how this crime has impacted her child who was present during the assault. So another thing I just wanted to kind of note, and I think we had kind of chatted about this a little earlier, um, one of the things about a victim impact statement is that you're not allowed to directly speak to the defendant, which is kind of like when I mentioned the Jeffrey Dahmer ones and, you know, talking about how they're screaming at the defendant, they aren't allowed to do that in our locality. And that can be sometimes hard for victims to understand that they have certain parameters they have to meet. So going back in, after Ms. Cuter finishes asking Beth her questions, just like a trial, the defense gets to ask her some questions. Most defense attorneys do not ask questions during this process. So in our case study, Ms. Fender decides to not ask any questions of Beth. And so after Beth has finished testifying, Ms. Cuter presents the guidelines as part of the evidence to the judge. And so next is Ms. Fender's turn to present evidence. So Ms. Fender is asking the judge to give Barry an all suspended sentence, which means no jail time. She has family members and coworkers of Barry's testify to what a great person and great employee Barry is. And during this time, Ava is sitting with Beth and encouraging her to step out if need be. So as advocates, we often hear from victims how unfair this process is. Sentencing is the part of the trial that seems to be all about the defendant. People who were not victims of the defendant's crime will say how positive their experience with the defendant is or was, and advocates usually try to prepare the victims for how hard this part of the process can be. So after both sides have presented all their evidence, they will argue for what they would like to happen to the defendant. Miss Cuter describes how Barry terrorized Beth and how this trauma will impact her for the rest of her life. Miss Cuter asks for Barry to serve an active jail sentence at the higher end of the guidelines. So as a result, Miss Fender argues that Barry is sorry for his crime. Miss Fender argues that Barry will be fired from his job if he has to spend any period of time in jail. And Ms. Fender tells the judge that Barry will engage in counseling and parenting classes and anything else probation orders. Um, Right before the judge delivers the sentence, they will ask the defendant if they have anything to say or any reason they should not be sentenced that day. Most of the time, defendants will say they were sorry and regret what happened or something along those lines. So in our case, the judge ends up giving Barry three years active jail time on the strangulation with two years suspended for a period of time. 
He also suspends all the time on the assault and battery. So 12 months with 12 months suspended for a one year period. When Barry gets out of jail, he'll be required to be on probation and comply with anything the probation officer asks him to do. He's also not allowed to have contact with Beth unless it pertains to their shared child. So the suspended time allows for the probation officer or the prosecutor to bring Barry back in front of the judge should he not comply with probation or accrue another charge while he's on probation. And we see this a lot in our cases, especially with the way that Virginia works with misdemeanor time and felony time. And we're not going to get too in the weeds with that, but that's just something that often comes up that I think a lot of victims don't quite understand when they're in those sentencing things so they'll come out and say he got five years or he got three years and then we have to say well hold on a second this is kind of what that meant and we have to take a step back and make sure everyone understands and so Beth gets to watch Barry taken away in handcuffs Ava then tells Beth about a DOC program called Navi this program is run by the victim specialist unit they alert victims of when their offender will be released from jail transferred to another facility or if the offender is killed or injured in jail. Navi has some awesome features for victims. One of those features is blackout dates. Victims can request not to be notified on certain dates, such as the anniversary of their crime or their birthday. Ava will explain all this to Beth and help her sign up for Navi before she leaves the courthouse that day. Ava and Miss Cuter will also debrief with Beth and answer any questions that she may have as a result of the sentencing. And so I forgot to mention this before or add this to our little section here to the script, but um, Navi is just a Virginia program. So there are other states have something similar. And so if you are listening to this from somewhere else, you might want to talk to your local victim witness program because they'll have something else for each state. Um, but back into our case, Barry has 10 days to submit this appeal to submit appeal of his sentence. Um, because Ava signed Beth up for Navi, again, this is just Virginia, the Attorney General's Office Victim Specialist will be able to notify Beth of the appeal and the decision about the appeal. Advocates work closely with the DOC and the Attorney General Victim Specialist so that we can do a soft handoff and victims are aware that someone else would be contacting them in the future with any updates or information. Okay, so since this is National Crime Victims' Rights Week, we would like to point out the rights that were honored during the case of Beth and Barry. So the first being Beth being kept up to date with court dates and status of the case. That is the right to be kept uh, to be kept informed. And then Beth also met with the prosecutor and was able to give it to give an impact statement. So this goes along with the right to be heard. And Beth was also given a safe place to wait during the trial and sentencing hearing and explain the protective order process. And this is the right to protection. And so Ava and Miss Cuter took the time to empower Beth and allowed her to express her concerns, ask questions, and make decisions on what resources she wanted to pursue. This is the part of the right to be treated with dignity and respect. So thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. We are so excited to start preparing for the next season and a lot of the other things that we have coming. In the meantime, please check out our social media. It's at Gloucester VWAP. It'll be included in the description of this episode. We've got a great National Crime Victims Rights Week um, kind of online social media event we're doing called Survivor Voices 2023. So if you're following us, you'll be up to date and kind of involved with that. And until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate. Welcome to episode one of season four of Victim Meet Advocate. Today we are interviewing the executive director of Virginia Victim Assistance Network, Kate Hanger. This episode is a little different than normal as it's being recorded live from the VVAN Directors Forum. The forum is a great training opportunity for directors of victim witness programs across the state of Virginia to learn about services and to network. I always bring back such great ideas to share with the team after this training, so let me introduce our guest. 
Kate Hanger is the executive director of the Virginia Victim Assistance Network. She has more than 20 years of experience working in the nonprofit field, specifically in community education and outreach. Kate is a fierce advocate for advocates. Every training that I've been to with Kate, she's always reminding us how important and necessary we are and to advocate for ourselves. Kate knows how important this line of work is because she herself has worked in victim services. She worked as a coordinator of the Victim Assist Helpline and Human Trafficking Info Line. Believe me when I say you are all in for a treat with this episode. So without further ado, let me introduce Miss Kate Hanger. Hi, Kate. I'm so glad you could do this episode with us. So let's just jump right into the questions. First, can you start off with a little information about Virginia Victim Assistance Network? How did it get started and what is your role there? Sure. So 41 years ago, there was a group of victim advocates primarily who were at the systems level. So um, working at DCJS, the Department of Corrections and other state agencies who recognized that Virginia needed a victim witness assistance program and its own Bill of Rights so that it could begin providing victims with the types of services that had really begun at the federal level. They were instrumental in creating the program, identifying funding sources, and putting the measures in place, including adding the Victims' Bill of Rights to Virginia's code. Those same advocates were um, the founders of our organization. They recognized that victim advocates were a profession that needed the same type of supports resources, camaraderies, and opportunities to support each other as other professionals do. Our organization has been a 501c3 nonprofit for the last 41 years. However, for the majority of its existence, really operated more like a a 501c6 membership organization, similar to, you know, the American Medical Association or the Virginia Association of Commonwealth Attorneys. And a professional association, its purpose is to support its members, typically who, you know, are, are in the same profession. Um, We have a hybrid identity. We serve victims of crime through our direct services programs, and we also serve victims um, indirectly by providing the advocates with the training and the resources and the supports that they need to best serve victims of crime. Okay. And so like in Gloucester, we are system-based advocates, so can you explain a little bit how VVAN's role is different from ours? Sure. While our history is systems-based and the majority of our members currently are victim witness assistance program advocates, we view ourselves as kind of straddling the gap between the systems-based advocacy groups and the community-based advocacy groups. We are aware that there are some times that those groups are at odds with each other. It unfortunately is the case that there are victims for whom a victim witness advocate believes, you know, going in one direction is going to serve that victim best. And their community-based advocate may think that a different approach is what's going to be best for the victim. We recognize that everyone wants what's best for the victim. It just isn't always the same path that we see as being what is going to serve that victim the best and and keep them safest. Our goal is to 
put the victim first, to have policies and, um, and resources that really focus on what are the needs of that victim, both in the short and the long term, and to help forge the connections for the systems and the community-based programs so that they're able to work together and, um, and share resources uh, and come to, um, and, and come to a, an agreement that the, the victim ultimately is the one that should be the focus. Absolutely. So I know you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are some services that VVAN provides directly to victims? So right now we have the two um, statewide phone numbers. One is the Victim Assist Helpline, and that is for any victim of any crime. We also have the Human Trafficking Info Line that is specific to victims of human trafficking, um, service providers who are looking for resources for human trafficking victims, and then also anyone who's looking to potentially report or um, get information on what to do if they suspect that human trafficking is, um, is happening in their area. The Victim Assist Helpline was created in the 90s. It was originally a DCJS resource. Okay. And it's interesting because in your office, I'm sure you have the, the brochures for the Victim's Bill of Rights yes. and other documentation such as the protective orders. And, and what you'll see on a lot of these documents is um, the DCJS Crime Victims Info Line. It mm -hmm. starts with 888. That 888 number is what was created by DCJS in the 90s. Oh, wow. So VVAN gets a victim services grant um, through uh, DCJS. It's one of the VOCA grants. And when we applied for our grant in, um, I think it was 2017, it was identified that the, the number... The, the number that DCJS had established in the 90s, back when a 1-800 or 888 number was really a huge advantage mm -hmm. since calling anywhere outside of your own area code had a long distance charge associated right. with it, that that resource hadn't changed at all since the 90s. It was still just a phone number. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to really bring it into the 21st century with some more dynamic um, uh, access such as the text message or doing an online chat. So that was part of our grant was that we, um, we absorbed that program and we changed, we, we added a vanity number, so mm -hmm. it says something cute. Oh. And then, but the old line is, is still active, and we still get a lot of calls through the mm -hmm. old number, so people are still getting it off of those forms. Oh, wow. And then they're also calling through the, the new number. Mm -hmm. um, all of those go to Angie, Angie Haney, and okay. she is our direct services coordinator, and Angie used to be work at Victim Witness in Williamsburg, James City County. Oh, that's right. So we also have the uh, human trafficking info, or excuse me, we also have the Homicide Survivor Support Group Program. Mm -hmm. And Sharnell Hamlin is the coordinator for that program. She was um, victim witness director in Surrey County. Okay. And the homicide support groups, they operate all over the state of Virginia. We have, I believe, 11 active groups right now, including a statewide 
virtual group mm -hmm. and a Spanish-speaking group as well. Oh, um, and those are for anyone who has lost a loved one to homicide. Mm -hmm. The services are all free. They're confidential. And they are customized for the group members. So, you know, different localities in Virginia are different and the residents are different and their needs are different. And our goal is to, is to provide that grief support in the way that it serves the members. Those are led by licensed um, mental health professionals and um, they have been going for, let's see, four years strong now and they're really doing well. That's great. Yeah, we had our legal services program. We're still in the process of revising that mm -hmm. and getting some additional funding to bring it about. It also will be for any victim of any crime, providing information, um, guidance, advice, legal advice, and then um, on a case-by-case -case basis, legal representation for victims. Oh, that's great. They definitely could use that. Absolutely. So then on the other hand, what are the services that you guys provide professionals? Like what kind of trainings do you put on? Right now we've got our five core trainings. We've got the um, annual directors forum, which is for our victim witness directors, which is where we are right now. And um, that is a day and a half training that is specific to victim witness programs um, and helping to communicate any of the updates that are relevant to the victim witness programs and then also address the needs um, of those programs. We have the two different victim academies, and the names are a little bit um, misleading. Um, one is called the Basic Victim Assistance Academy. Um, that is really the, the essentials. That is um, all of the information about um, what victims need, the services that we provide, um, the trauma-informed <clears throat> excuse me, care, um, the the requirements through the code and then the advanced is really more of a deeper dive so this year the advanced academy was on um, firearms and it's we we have a topic every year that is um, prescient and we um, and we do a specific training just on that topic we also have our uh, advocacy and legislative forecast we have that in the spring every year. Um, that's where we review the new laws that, um, that came out of the General Assembly and then also touch on some of the new advocacy practices that we've learned about. And then we also have the annual crime on, um, excuse me, annual conference on crime, crime victims issues. And this year it's gonna be our 41st. Oh, wow. I always learn so much at the trainings, every single one of them. So great. Well, the thing about the work that y'all do is it's ever-evolving. Okay. And it's not like you can get a degree and then go out and start serving victims of crime because the laws change and the resources change and the information changes. And it is something that we feel is, is critical for you all to do your job is to be aware of those things and also to, to connect with each other to share that information and, and how you're able to apply it in the work you do. Absolutely. So then to change gears again, mm -hmm. and I know lobbying is part of what you guys do. So could you walk us through the aspects of that and that process and what a typical day in the life of doing that looks like? 
It's so funny because this the term lobbying it's it's kind of nebulous. It doesn't there there are a lot of documents that will show like oh this is the difference between legislative advocacy versus lobbying versus educating. And I think that lobbying it also gets a it has kind of a bad association to mm -hmm. it because Sometimes lobbying is making donations to political campaigns um, or other financial transactions with politicians that um, will play out in the favor of whoever is making the donation, and that is not something that we ever, ever do. Um, we are a nonprofit organization. We are prohibited from that type of lobbying, and Absolutely. and also that's just not, it's just not in our values. Right. For us, the the responsibility and the role that we have is to um, help Virginia's leadership understand not just the needs of victims, but also that there are these code mandated rights that are afforded to victims in Virginia and that there are professionals whose jobs are also code mandated mm -hmm. and that their responsibility is to uphold the rights of victims and to share with them the challenges and the successes of those programs because they're directly serving their constituents. Um, we're very fortunate to have an amazing contract lobbyist. Her name is Catherine Ford, and she has worked in, in politics, specifically Virginia politics, for many, many years. And she's done a really great job of educating our politicians about what our organization does, about what the victim witness programs do, the needs of victims of crimes, the challenges and the burdens that victims face. Because truly, if, if victim advocacy is going to be a part of our state's laws, yeah. the lawmakers, they should be aware of what that means and what is needed in order for those laws to be upheld. Absolutely. I thought Catherine did great today listening to all of us tell her a million things that we think she needs to take with her, which I thought was great that she's hearing it from our perspective and hearing all the stuff that we hear from victims, which I thought was great. She's really great. She's great at listening yeah. and she knows how to communicate that mm -hmm. the right way. And she also has been instrumental in helping to raise awareness of the need for funding, which is a, a critical piece in, in helping you all do the work that everyone needs from you. Um, so on your website, it mentions that one of the key goals is to foster accountability through the criminal justice system. We agree with you that's so important. So what are some ways that you all do that? And what are some ways programs like ours may be able to do that? You know, it's so funny. When I first came to work at VVAN, my interpretation of that statement was that we are holding the criminal justice system accountable for what it owes to victims of crime. And, and I think that the intended interpretation is that we expect the criminal justice system to hold the perpetrators accountable for their actions. And I think that putting the expectation that a system that 
isn't focused on the victim's needs Mm -hmm. or what the, the victims feel is accountability and having the expectation that it be holding perpetrators accountable for their actions, I don't think that that's reasonable. Right. I think that we all have a responsibility as citizens and as part of a community. And I think that there are a lot of different ways that we can hold each other accountable for our actions and how our actions impact other people. I know that one of the roles of victim advocates is to manage the expectations of victims. Right. Not everybody has the same definition of justice. And what our system um, feels is justice oftentimes leaves victims feeling more lost than they were before. Right. And unfortunately, I don't feel that a lot of the measures we have in place to hold perpetrators accountable is achieving the goal of making them better citizens and making them more aware of the impact that their actions have on their communities. I feel that our systems have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to our citizens But in order for them to uphold that responsibility, they have to be designed to to serve. To serve not just victims, but communities. Absolutely. And, and, And perpetrators, too. So that statement, which has a funny history to it, um... Originally, it was intended to show that our goal is that people who, who cause harm, that they be held accountable by the criminal justice system and that we are a part of making sure that happens. But we know that there are so many other ways to hold people accountable, and sometimes those ways are preferable to victims. Yeah. Alternate methods of... Um, addressing harm and and so for me you know the more I learn about victims and victims needs and the really really complicated and complex situations that can lead up to a victimization and then those very very different needs Mm -hmm. I think that part of our responsibility is to find other ways that we can make everyone accountable for, for their part in, in community. Absolutely. Um, so what is one of the hardest parts of the work you do, and what is one of the best? I always say that this work is a serotonin roller coaster. Yes. Right? You know, you've got those days where you just, it's like, 
I can't keep trying to save the world when the world doesn't want to be saved. I can't keep fighting against these systems that are making this impossible. I want to go to the house of the person that I just talked to and burn it to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the hardest parts for me about when we went into quarantine, I was still running the helplines and there were so many times when I would get off the phone with a victim and I would come out of my office and just rage in the yeah. hallway just you know god bless my coworkers because i would just be like oh my god you got you know and and just needed to share the frustrations but i also needed that when i got off the phone with someone and felt like i really they really really are so much better off just for the time that I was able to give them, you know, they feel yeah. more hopeful. They feel like they have some sense of control over what's happening next. Um, and the hard part for me is that oftentimes I'm doing work that isn't interacting with the human beings that I need to interact with. Right. Um, and feeling like is our position making a big enough difference and and will we be able to make a big enough difference um, in the lives of the victims and 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 the victim serving professionals and not knowing the answer to that right the best part is the people it's mm-hmm. always the people. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and that's my, that's my people. That's our staff. Mm-hmm. I'm fortunate to have incredible staff. Mm-hmm. We have excellent board. We love our members. We love the, the people who attend our trainings. Yeah. And, and being able to have our lives enriched mm-hmm. by serving victims, we, we all get something from each other. And um, it's been a while since I've covered the helpline, but when I do, I get a reminder of just the intense highs and the intense lows that can come with that. Um, And it and it helps sort of renew the the purpose and the the drive, right? To keep the work going. Absolutely. Um, so we just talked about this, but the field can be kind of stressful. So what are some ways that you maintain self-care? That's such a good question. I'm glad you asked me that. So I'm teaching myself a lot about self-care um, because it has to be specific to us, yeah. right? So for me, um, self-care is, you know, I used to make the very common mistake of um, choosing self-indulgence and thinking that it was self-care and having to recognize, okay, no, this, this, this might feel fun and slightly naughty, but it actually leaves me feeling a little worse off than I was before. And so self-care for me is I do um, weightlifting classes. I have a condition called hypermobility. And and as I'm aging, my body's kind of turning into wet newspaper. And it's the responsibility now of my muscles to hold the rest of me together because other parts are getting a little too slack. 
And so um, exercising is really helpful for me in managing my chronic pain and also strengthening my body. Um, And that's something that I have been prioritizing. I'm not as good about putting it first as I'd like to be, but it is something that I've been doing. Um, You can see... This is not for the listening audience, but you know, self-care sometimes is um, putting our own needs above other people's expectations of us. Yeah. And sometimes that means putting our own needs in front of our expectations of ourselves. Because Ooh. my expectation of myself when I'm out is that I'm wearing a dress and heels. Right. But I have to wear knee braces. And I am struggling with some inflammation in my foot. And if I can't wear heels, I'm not wearing a dress, which is why I'm wearing slacks and flats at this training as opposed Mm -hmm. to what I normally would like to wear. And that is, it sounds, it's, I mean, it's not cool, but (laughs) it is self-care. Right. Um, It's making sure that I feed my body the nutrients that it needs and not just giving it caffeine and sugar um, because as I get older those things do a lot of damage to my energy and my ability to think and process Um, you know self-care it means truly prioritizing your own ability to thrive right um i still will put off doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. but i'm really good about seeing a therapist yeah i'm really getting better at advocating for my own needs Mm -hmm. recognizing when i'm tired and not forcing myself to push through yeah because unfortunately what happens is i push through and it's two hours that doesn't result in much as opposed to getting the rest and making better use of my time. Um, So those are my really not fun, sexy (laughs) versions of self-care. They're still great self-care though. It, it, It sometimes, you know, takes us a while to reach the place of knowing what we need and sometimes we have to try on a lot of different things before we find what's good for us and not everything works for the same people and I like you know oh I I also I uh, I experimented with cold plunges which is really cool that sounds cool have you done cold plunges have you heard about it yes so we have a I have a bathtub on my back porch, and you fill a bathtub up with cold water, and then you let it sit overnight Mm -hmm. in January. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And you get into it, and and your body feels like you're going to die, but what happens is apparently is if you torture yourself for four minutes, for the rest of the day, you feel great. (laughs) Does it work? It does. Yeah, I mean, it truly, it's... I mean, it is, you know, science. It, it, um, it's the re- same reason why exercise helps us to level our dopamine. Yeah. It helps us feel good. You know, our bodies are always looking for homeostasis. And if you, you know, put your body into distinct, you know, discomfort, mm-hmm. it will look to level out. 
that discomfort, which means sending a bunch of those good hormones to you, and then you get to ride those hormones for the rest of the day. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It is. last question, and then I will let us get to Empower Hour. Sure. But what would you like victims of crime to know? Well, first of all, don't be a victim of crime. That's true. Yeah. And if you have to be a victim of crime, definitely don't be poor. I hope you edit this out. (laughs) Um, What I wish victims of crime knew is that anything that they think they know about the criminal justice system is likely wildly inaccurate. We have a serious disservice to the people in our country that any source of entertainment, be it a book or a movie or a television show or a podcast, is probably not providing them with an accurate snapshot of what this, the, the system is. Right. And, and that the majority of the time they are going to be overwhelmed, confused, disoriented, and feel completely lost and also feel completely ignored yeah. and that sadly that's normal like and 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 as advocates part of your job is to meet that person where they are and right. say I'm going to hold your hand and walk you through this madness mm-hmm. don't expect to have any idea what's going on right because when they're throwing out language in half latin and when people are making decisions and all of a sudden we're leaving this room and going in this room, you're never going to be able to keep up. Right. But all you have to do is trust that I am looking out for you and that I will communicate with you what you need to know and that at any point you can always check in with me and I will help you understand what's going on even if it doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, I've been doing this work for a long time. There's still so much that I don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, until we have the expectations that that any type of entertainment that is around a profession, you know, any television show that is about a hospital really should maybe resemble what it's like to be in a hospital. Right, absolutely. Any television show that is about a crime should resemble what it's like to work in crime. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it is an unfair fair burden on victims to sell them a story that isn't ever gonna be the reality more than anything else if it's the only thing that you keep from this I think it's important for victims to know that your life it's not a chapter book it's a collection of short stories yeah and some of those stories are going to be really, really sad and hard ones, but it's not it. And you have the chance and the opportunity to find whatever is resolution, whatever is healing, whatever is justice for you in so many other ways. Don't look to this one system to undo the harm that was done to you. And that part of being an advocate is is helping those victims to see this door might be closed now. Mm -hmm. Let's go look for some other open doors and get you through them 
so that you continue your healing process well beyond what just happened in this room. What's some great advice. So we'll end it there. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I really appreciate it.